Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to the second season of Medical Women Talking. The podcasts are made up of conversations with some amazing women doctors who've had incredible careers. Being a woman and a doctor can be challenging, but these conversations are designed to be shared to help those women aspiring to fulfilling careers and to leadership roles. We hear a lot of negative stuff about medicine these days, but these inspiring stories show us that medicine can still be brilliant. Listen and be inspired. Scarlett McNally is an orthopaedic surgeon. That's very unusual for a woman. She's also an orthopaedic surgeon with four children. Listen to her story here. At the moment, she's the president of the Medical Women's Federation, so she has a passion for supporting other women in medicine. Scarlett, could you start off by telling us a potted history of your career so far, and then we'll take it from there? Um, Yes, and it's lovely to um, be on your podcast. Thank you. Um, So um, I'm a consultant orthopaedic surgeon now um, and have been for 22 years. Um, So I, but I decided about 14, I wanted to go into medicine. Um, And uh, I went to talk to my uncle, the only medic I knew. I I cycled over to his house and said um, I wanted, I was going to do medicine. And he was a psychiatrist. He said, ah, well, don't get pregnant until you're a registrar. And at the time I knew what it involved getting pregnant, but I didn't know what a registrar was. (laughs) But actually that was quite an interesting bit of advice. Um, And um, it's much easier to be pregnant when you're in a job, when you've got a job to come back to. Um, And it's very sad that um, 40 years later, (laughs) we're still um, thinking along those lines um, because medicine ought to be so much better. Anyway, um, I did look, I went to medical school and um, I knew I wanted to do surgery. I did not have a plan B. So every time someone tried to put me off, it didn't occur to me that they were thinking they were being kind, um, benevolent, um, unconscious bias, they call that, um, because I didn't have a plan B. I knew I wouldn't be a very good GP. I'd tell everyone to stop smoking and do some exercise. And then if they didn't do it and I had to see them month or two later I, I, I'd probably have another go at them because <laughs> so, I knew at the time that health was about more than just fixing things um, so for me I just wanted to fix things and um, uh, and it's lovely it's just the best job in the world I love it um, and I went through all the uh, SHO jobs weren't on rotations at the time so I just uh, found one near a good karate club um, and they were every six months February and August and I put all my stuff in my mini metro my coffee maker and my um, duvet and stuff and went to a different um, place every six months um, and um, did some anatomy demonstrating um, and uh, eventually got uh, it, I got um, uh, I got my registrar rotation um, and I did a, a year in Australia as a, a fellow which was great because I thought all surgery was going to go um putting telescopes in people um and so i'd have to learn how to do that so i did um a year of of that and now i don't do that at all um but it was lots of other, other things you can pick up all sorts of things on the way and yeah i've done all sorts of stuff i've been on committees and things i i was on the council of the royal college of surgeons of england for 10 years um which was great fun it really did feel i was the ninth woman elected there it didn't feel like we were making a difference and they let me write lots of leaflets like 
uh, avoiding unconscious bias a guide for surgeons and an undergraduate curriculum so that people so that students can see the minimum standard and I along the way I did a part-time MA in education and a part-time MBA about health service management um, and I was director of medical education for my trust for three years but um, looking back I'd have done things differently if I'd be doing them now and I'm now president of the Medical Women's Federation which is great uh, really interesting and it's ideas all sorts of different people who are not driven and um, wanting to fix things and being a bit short of time and, and pressured it's really interesting um, and I'm also deputy director for the Centre for Peroperative Care which um, is amazing actually they only pay they pay my trust half a day my week for my time um, but it's about getting people fitter before surgery getting teams to talk together so that you don't have the same people can type of cancellations on the day that you could have predicted earlier um, and getting yeah getting teams talking together getting safety steps done much better it was all that stuff it's lovely it's lovely I could I, in fact I do I go around the country conferences talking about all sorts of stuff so that's me, but I, I'm a half-time clinical now, um, and that is great. Um, so, so you've 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 talked about doing the day job and obviously becoming competent at the day job. And the the other thing that you me mentioned is something that one of the other uh, people I've been talking to calls side hustles, um, and that's quite an interesting way that women seem to thrive and survive in in their careers by having something to do that isn't just bread and butter NHS well is it I'm just I've been challenging myself a lot over the last year or four um I don't know that that I, I think it's that that's what the kind of women that have had to force themselves through the whatever glass ceilings off the glass cliffs whatever are the kind of people that just don't stop even when to be honest they probably ought to and um then take on these extra roles and i know i'm driven by not wanting to see stuff done badly because i want to fix it um and actually sometimes that's the wrong approach um so i think we do pick up all these extra things and suddenly think suddenly you've got too much on um because stuff does take time and and so I survived because I can survive on not very much sleep, which is quite bad because that causes dementia um, and increased risk of suicide, actually, um, sleep deprivation, which is one reason we need to sort out rotors for people. Um, but I was doing a lot of this stuff in the evenings, weekends, spare time, um, because um, but I think it's the kind of people that are that have had to prove themselves to get to that position, then carry on doing that stuff because that's what you think you have to do and I think yeah. a lot of my colleagues are like that too. We're all very driven I think the people that I've been talking to are all very driven it's a pejorative term but I think um, we're all girly swats um, that, that we do uh, we do work really hard and all of the people that I have spoken to have done very very well in medicine tend to uh, work extremely hard and you know, sometimes that has its disbenefits as well as its benefits. Yeah, and actually, um, the other problem is we are still all proving ourselves. Um, and so we send out something, we double check it. We've got the correct link in the email, the, you know, all that stuff. And it's interesting watching um, some of the uh, men on 
the Council of Royal Correspondents of England, just assuming that the um, secretary would do all that kind of stuff and um, uh, that sort of thing. I uh, it, just a different way of doing business and a different expectation from the staff around them about what they'll do. This, um, particularly the nursing staff, I'm afraid to say. Um, different people are treated differently and they have different expectations that someone will rush in and sort everything out for them. Um, but but yeah. you must have had an incredibly busy existence though in your 20 years as a consultant well, orthopaedic yeah. surgeon because you, you I mean you've got you've got your career you've got what I'm now calling your side hustles mm -hmm. um, and you've also got children haven't you? So yes um, I have four children um, they're now 2022 24 26 um and uh and they're amazing people amazing um uh so interesting about the the job um the thing that i think was completely changed surgery was the national confidential inquiry into pa patient outcome and death because before that time before 1999 when the cpod report came out we'd have to operate on whatever was there to be operated on so that was all my time as a registrar if I was on call if it was an operation to be done I'd do them and we do um you know and it made you quite a difficult person because you had to argue with people to get your case done you had to get open fractures to theatre within six hours but to all the people listening you can train someone to do the technical operating um and the skills and all that stuff you can train people to do the team brief and the dealing with the team well and you can be an amazing amazing at your day job and it gets easier and easier because things put into patterns but it was the fact that it changed so it's now life or limb threatening only at night was um fantastic not just for patients basically the thoughts that it's worse for patients you operate on them at night um but it transformed being able to get some sleep and seeing your kids and being predictable and then there'd be trauma list the next day so someone would phone you up in the middle of the night go oh we've got this person with a compound tibial fracture blah, blah, blah. and you'd look at the x-ray on the thing or they'd describe it to you and you say oh great make sure the analgesia whatever um see you in the morning they go oh thanks you know it wasn't a get up drive to the hospital do the operation drive back um it, so it just changed um, just before I became a consultant. Um, that, so that was transformative. I'm just saying that because people don't realise there's people my age still working, being deans of medical schools or whatever they look amazing things they're doing, not realising surgery. You work as a team. Um, a huge amount is, is day case surgery now, about 85% surgery done is day case. So it isn't, you can just work really hard Mondays and Tuesdays, have the rest of the week off. You can do that. Um, but you you work with a team. It's not you alone trying to do something heroic, which, to be honest, it really did have to be in the 1990s. And I was mm -hmm. a horrible person then. Um, so in terms of the children, um, my husband uh, was a nurse and he dropped his hours to bring up the children. Um, and that was the that was the deal. Um, and he'd often go away at weekends and things with you know vintage car things and <laughs> cycling and you know sailing and also he was a very busy kind of person um and so I'd get the you know he'd done a shift I'd get the kids um and I did you know there were some family holidays when I, I should have come back from work earlier but I was trying to sort out some emails and stuff so you know he'd pack the car and all that um and I thought that was the deal and looking back that was difficult um uh, but yeah, and the kids are amazing. I think my key key top tip is live near the hospital. 
um, because then you're not, I mean, admittedly, lots of people are doing shifts. We don't want to have to commute and travel. I cycle to work, so I'm never queuing for the car park. And that also means I arrive serene because the endorphins have hit me um, at 15 minutes when I get to work and, and I, um, all that stuff. Yeah. And kids in local schools? Um, yes, yeah, so we did local uh, primary schools. Um, and then uh, I was struggling a bit with four kids at, you know, eight, six, four, three, uh, six, four, two, zero. Um, so I then put the kid in the local, the oldest one into the uh, uh, prep school because I thought I can't do all this reading afterwards and all the extra stuff you're supposed to do. I couldn't guarantee that. Um, and my husband's dyslexic and I, you know, he did, did as much um, as I one of my kids are actually and we did the toe by toe reading and I did as much as I could should we say but um yeah um so, but I at the time that was the right choice for me so did you have the other child care um oh for a while when they were little my mother would come and stay for weekends sometimes um um one of my sister-in-laws uh, came for a few weekends to send Jamie off for a um weekend away um, we had, but we paid loads of money on babysitters um, and we had nurseries for the little ones. In fact, even in Australia, we had nurseries. We, they went to the two that we went to Australia with had nurseries. Um, but yeah, we paid for nurseries and we had, but we got that through salary sacrifice schemes. Um, when they were little, we had a childminder initially because I hadn't put the nursery in time because I didn't actually believe I was having a baby. I, you know, I just knew something was going to go wrong. Um, so it was a bit of a miss mixed match but yeah we always had nurseries and school and um you know stuff but um yeah and then saturdays you know you'd have often a couple of different birthday parties in different parts of town and you know um uh gymnastics and dance and rugby and all that stuff it was a, a very family focused but the other thing is live in town you know all my colleagues with their fancy lovely beautiful country houses you then have one parent committed to driving whereas we're mm. right by Eastbourne station um, and we've got there were teenagers across the road who could be on standby if I was on call and Jay was away um, and they come and they'd come and do them I'd just phone them up go come on Dan I've been called in they'd be there in three minutes oh, um, fantastic and so it's those those things you need it's the geography and the money makes a huge difference um and, and yeah. having yeah. Know, I mean it's interesting just listening to what you say reflecting on the randomness of childcare crises so you need to have people who are well and around who can come and and help out but you yeah. got through it yeah yeah so, so um the the other thing that but so you talk slightly wistfully about family and about getting through it because it is quite a struggle, isn't it? It is. And I would have done things differently. I thought at the time that if I went part time, I would be looked down upon. I think it was also quite handy having kids two years apart because <laughs> I had a four month sabbatical every two years um, of maternity leave. So I could just be a mummy. I and mean, I was a, I was dreadful at it, actually, because people would be trying to go to mother and baby coffee mornings I was like there's no point in meeting people I'm going to go back to work um but it was great to have to be able to settle my son into school because I was on maternity leave with my um, youngest daughter and he was four so we had a lovely summer um and settled him in for because you could only do you did three hours a day for the first week and the 
bit more for the second week because it would have been quite difficult to manage otherwise um uh, although my husband would have taken time off work to do that um uh, so yeah that but that was lovely time um yeah and then um also though you've you've struggled with your health haven't you you've had some health problems that you've been uh, yes. quite open about so how has that impacted on so, your life um, and your career so uh, december 2018 i got taken ill very suddenly um and um I, I basically had heart failure um and just over a few months i thought i was anemic and swollen legs and short of breath walking upstairs or cycling up a hill um and i got diagnosed very quickly um and it it, it turned out to be myeloma uh, which is cancer of plasma cells and those produce abnormal antibodies which circulate around your heart and my landed on my heart and caused heart failure so it's amyloidosis um and the heart's rigid and like it couldn't pump um so i was getting dizzy if i stood up and all that stuff anyway um the treatment starts with chemotherapy and so I basically went I, I was marched out I, I was I collapsed at work I knew I, I'd booked myself in to see the cardiologist I was supposed to have an echo at some point that morning and um that GP had arranged um anyway I kind of collapsed off the get up of the echocardiogram um table and I was um MRIs all sorts of anyway um loads of chemo and I knew that a stem cell transplant was the only it was the best attempt at utilizing cure but going into remission but I was told I wasn't fit enough so um I had all sorts of different chemo at one point one didn't work and another you know anyway so I had a stem cell transplant September 2020 um and I'd I'd had to prove that I was fit enough I got an electric bike and cycled every day and I was eating my fruit and vegetables and steaks and everything to try and get myself um as fit as I could be and, and I made them do cardiopulmonary exercise testing so I was eligible um, and then I had the harvest just before the pandemic struck February 2020 um, of my own stem cells and then I went in for um, uh, two and a half weeks in um, and had a stem cell transplant which was absolutely draining literally you just liquid green poo um, and only hair falling out and all that stuff but I was so the problem is during the pandemic I was shielding and I was so um angry <laughs> um and so I just took on loads of stuff I was writing stuff I was going on online meetings all this stuff and actually after the pandemic it was a bit tough going back to in-person meetings it takes a bit more time you've got to plan your travel you've got all that stuff um and um and also at one point I, I should have been chairing a committee and somebody who thought he was being kind that benevolent bias said oh no we thought you might need more treatment so we haven't put you on that committee even it was that kind of it made me quite angry with how other people are dealt with and it was quite straightforward for me going back to work part-time my manager was great um east sussex healthcare nhs trust you come and work here eastbourne it's lovely um but my manager was great and why is it so difficult for people going back to after maternity leave? And um, you know, we need to make the system better. And being a surgeon in training is a really difficult time. We need to make that better. Um, and a bit more funding so people have CPD time extra when they're trying to look after their kids at weekends. And we, you know, so all of that, um, it was difficult and I, and I thought it was settling down, but I took on these extra two roles because I thought I wouldn't be able to operate again at, at, at one point. Uh, but now I am. Um uh, right, so you're back. Back. back half time and it's and great well, and, and um 
amazing. I mean, I still have top up immunotherapy every four weeks, which um, <laughs> it, it does feel, you know, um, it feels like having a period, actually, you know, you can predict when you're going to have a bad time after steroids or whatever. And, and so I adjust my, my time tables adjusted. So I don't, don't work at the end of the week um, on those weeks. Um, so, yeah, um, but so it's still I'm still alive. Um, uh, and I'm but I'm trying to rush everything in because it didn't occur to me that I wouldn't I wouldn't die. I was trying to get everything out. And I've got this job writing editorials in the BMJ every two weeks or opinion pieces. I just write stuff so you can it's on open access BMJ Scarlet Manal, you'll find them. And I write about road traffic and um, uh, prevention and not being perfect and accepting people. If you've gone to work, there's a minimum standard, it should be a baseline and you just look after your team. And if someone's having a bad day, they've just come back from sick leave. They haven't done that operation for just give them a bit of positivity and I have the whole team ready to, to help. And I tell my team when the breaks are going to be, you know, oh, this Jupiter's case is going to be so nice and boring or go off and have coffee, then leave me with some you know, 15 blades, four and nine, and I'll be cool. Uh, but don't leave me when it's the difficult case with a, with a kit because I, I don't know quite what I'm doing yet. So, and they all laugh and I go, no, really? And it, it just, it's such, it just works. It, this is not so do you think Do you think it, that, that very difficult experience, it sounds as if you feel as if it's made you more whole? Yeah, and it's made me appreciate people. And I think the problem with surgery is you're so busy getting the next job and proving yourself with all these papers and you're the best and you've got the right answer in the journal club and you're all pompous, whatever, and you've got there on time. And it, it means that if people can't do that, some people in that room think they're lesser and they're not. It's only temporary. It's like being pregnant, it's only temporary. And people should be given a little bit of extra support during that time. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, having small kids is only temporary or... Uh, my mother's got dementia and I have to manage all her stuff but you know I suddenly have to zone out and do something and then but I need the rest of the team to make sure that I've come back on track you know yeah but it has made yeah. me more human so, but so in the last um in the last few days there's been all sorts of negativity in the press about sexual harassment in surgery is that something that's affected you um yes um I mean sexism is a daily occurrence people treating you differently because you're a woman um and that is a problem and i didn't i thought that would be fixed by now but it's not um and people having lesser opportunities because of their gender or because they've had lesser so I'm, I'm actually more supportive of people who i think have had a worse time in the past i've never in the past been into positive discrimination but now I'm a bit more helpful um to people like this little bit of a quiet medical student we had recently and I was trying to encourage him because the tall handsome one we had the previous week was just fawned over by the staff you know? so I'm kind of it's made me realize what people have come through yeah yeah but so that's sexism is is one thing Sorry, yes sexual so the, se sexual, sexual harassment, harassment bit. so sexual um, misconduct I think sexual misconduct so I was registered on the SHA register on the 1990s and it was completely normal for people to have say rude jokes, um, flirt excessively. But at the time, there was a quite a lot of blurring. You were living in hospital accommodation. These were the people you went to the pub with. You were on call quite a lot. Um, and this so some there was too much blurring of that, uh, really, by today's standards. Um, and some people would have to be told, um, you know, 
what was not acceptable and, and um, there was more alcohol around in uh, social settings right around work um, and I think that's quite can be was quite a big problem but I got married in 1995 so I have a big badge and I got um, my fellowship soon after fellowship now it's membership uh, um, and so I have a big badge saying Mrs Scarlett McNally orthopedic registrar and then orthopedic consultant um so people don't mess because they know and i think it's this bro thing um why would you you we wouldn't mess with someone that's jay's bud you know and he's six foot four and he works in a and e um you know it just so for me personally um it all stopped absolutely when i came back from honeymoon it stopped and um and also as a consultant you don't see other people but i've i've witnessed it and um the last time i tried to do something about it um somebody obviously i've, I've been working in the same hospital for 22 years so this isn't somebody who works in that hospital um um the person gave me a very hard time and i've written the the um, person who done the bad behavior um and i've actually helped my trust with five different bullying allegations um as an investigator of other people and the problem is the reporting system is so tough um, because people have to bring the evidence and they they try and deny stuff. I mean, it's not, not about sexual misconduct, but about other things, you know, so people, you know, treating people badly, giving them a task and taking it away or say it wasn't good enough or um, or something or giving them a hard time for something you hadn't told them they ought to be doing. And all this people manage people really badly. So A, we need better management and leadership training and b we need to give you a bit more time and c we need to put in the prevention stuff so that it some things are not okay and there will be allyship and stuff to try and stop people saying what they shouldn't say and the vanderbilt cup of coffee that if you do the first aid bit in the room if somebody said something wrong you go oh we're not allowed to say that are we and everything stops you've got the first aid but then later someone very senior goes come on what's going on are you okay? Because often it's the person going through a divorce or their parents have got dementia or they've got money troubles or anything that lash out because they're so fixed, they're so burnt out maybe and they're stuck in the moment. And it's those people sometimes, they have no insight into how they come over to other people. And sure, there should be disciplinary processes for people who've got been um, done bad stuff. But we also need to support those those people are our patients too and our colleagues too and some of them didn't realize their impact so that's why i wrote the avoiding unconscious bias um uh, document for the college of surgeons and we got some e-learning about it and i'm really pleased that this is taken on board as something we can they're going to be code of conducts but i think we need to lift it to value everybody for what they're doing when they're there for the minutes they're in work they need to be valued um and i know we we you didn't want the podcast to run on too long, but there was something else I wanted to talk about because it's predominantly a women um, audience. So, so go ahead. I was just going. I was going to say we've heard some fantastic things about your life and and your career. Uh, I was just going to ask you if there was anything that you felt that you needed to say to the next generation of people who might be listening to this podcast, and we'll perhaps use that as a way of of winding up. Thank you. So um, earlier this year, my husband left. And I found it shocking and I didn't realise he always had the stuff he wanted to do, the bloke stuff, loads of, you know, um, cycling trips, vintage vehicles. But I thought he came back to me afterwards and we had all these four kids with all their different 
you know, whatever they're doing at the time. And I thought we were a great family unit. We were a great team. And we had the pandemic together, which possibly part of the problem that we couldn't go out just him and me as a as a um, couple. And we had different ideas about what the kids should be doing on their priorities and things. But I didn't realise how profound it was. And I think it's also a bit of burnout from working in the hospital. He was a nurse um, and he would live, say, because I was shielding, he was in, a, he went into spare room for, um, and bunched his shifts up over two weeks and then we'd have a week um, where he'd make sure he didn't have COVID so that we could have proper family time. But I didn't realise that he he just got tired and he just didn't have the buzz anymore. And he was really proud of me. You know, he's been talking about um, various you know slightly creepily interested in different people involved in in what I'm doing but he just was really tired bringing up the kids he found difficult um you know always having to justify himself um not being able to cope with the paperwork from school stuff which I did and you know I did more than my fair share more than most of my fellow surgeons wives um husbands sorry well I did more than most consultant surgeons did by a lot um but it was tough and I didn't realise how tough it was on him and I think he just lost the spark he just saw particularly after I'd been ill and came back and was trying to just work and then taking all this stuff and was working too hard I was always just a bit stressed and, and the stories do make me a bit weird um every it was every, twice a week and then it, so I just I'm quite regretful of how I've handled things there was a moment where I could have thought you know what I'm going to take ill health retirement or go part-time or or something or drop some of these commitments because there's as long as you do that succession planning and lift up people there'll be people to fill all the roles behind and sometimes so my top tips are um make time for your bloke have it um or your significant other um have a night where a babysitter just arrives and you go out um even if you haven't booked them just do, you know um use any don't you don't have to do things brilliantly you know and use other people's help and get the in-laws to come and cover for bits or accept that the cooking won't be done to your standard or people don't have to, I don't know, and, and spend time with the kids. The teenagers need a lot of time just to ignore you and to be given lifts places, but you need that. That's when it gets difficult. Up to the age of 10, they love you and adore you and you can, you know, send them to aunties who will look after them. For We, we did quite a lot of that as well. Um, um you know bring in the extended family so they've got other people to talk to when they're teenagers and they they just you know it's it's lovely if they've got a nice granny they can talk to or they go and have a special weekend up in york with auntie jum you know and split them up if you've got too many have an inset day when they've got an inset day take one off for a super special day you know even you know ice creams or um you know i, I took mine to disneyland um on the to Paris and um one had a completely different half term once and I just went to Egypt just with her um and it but the inset days are amazing just book it put them all off at annual leave beginning of the year just put them off um, so, so, special time so listening to you um it sounds to me as if you've done a pretty fantastic job at a huge number of things all at the same time um this isn't meant to be a, a counseling session but I would say Scarlett we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves. We do our You're best. Right. We do our You're best. You're right. And we can't be perfect. We need to know what good enough looks like, accepted in ourselves and other people, uh, get enough sleep. Um, and, you know, 
it just live different things come at different times yeah. you don't have to do stuff perfectly really really um, but also also there's life in different phases you know yeah. we don't have to cram everything in um and things so are very different now one of um one of the people who teaches on my leadership course says you can have it all but not all at the same time absolutely um, so um scarlet we've we've reached the end of our time so thank you so much for talking to me it's been fantastic to hear you and uh good luck i think it's all um it's all looks as if it's coming back together i hope everything works out for you thank you and i'm again just for anyone sometimes you're so rock bottom you can't see that it'll be okay but but it will be sorry to get emotional yeah, but but it will be, and there are different phases in life. There are different people that help pull you through just from a distance. But yeah, there's there's always going to be something else. There's always going to be a different phase. But thank you so much. Well, thank you for talking to me and thank you for your honesty. I'm sure that people will find your podcast really inspirational. So thanks, Scarlett. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Medical Women Talking. It's been a privilege to spend time with all these medical women. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this season. Don't forget, there are many other interviews in season one.